Hello and welcome to Groove Therapy, a podcast that explores the effects of live music on our brains, bodies, and our lives and provides you, our listener, a space where you can find out more about how you can take the magic of live music out into your everyday life. My name is Dr. Leah Taylor and I am joined here with my fantastic co-host, Tara Lee Weathers. Hi, Tara Lee. Hi, everybody. I'm coming to you from Mexico. Yes, Tara Lee is hanging out after the the fish shows in Mexico, and she's just going to do a little tour of Central America. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be a Nicar- Nicaraguan for, for a month <laughs> and then go to Costa Rica. Yeah, so you'll hear her coming to us remotely for the next few episodes, which we are super grateful for the power of Zoom for that. But Yeah, technology. All right, Tara Lee. Well, why don't you lead us in some breathing from your Mexican hacienda? (laughs) (laughs) The Marriott Courtyard by the airport. (laughs) It's very magical. (laughs) Um, So everybody, if it is available to you, please put your hands on your heart and close your eyes. Of course, if that is unsafe for you to do right now, please pay attention to what it is that you're doing. But if you can... Take three deep breaths together. So take a deep breath in through your nose and exhale out your mouth. And a deep breath in through your nose and exhale out your mouth. And a deep breath in through your nose and an exhale out your mouth. And may our time together be full of magic and flow and wonderful ideas and inspiration and motivation. And so it is. And so it is. Well, we certainly have an inspiring interview for you today. Yeah, we do. Yes, yes. We have Dr. Raymond Turpin, and he is a psychologist and he is doing amazing work in psychedelic assisted therapy. And we get to hear all about how Raymond was really inspired in the 80s to go into this work. So he got his bachelor's degree in psychology, ended up getting a master's in psychology, both in Georgia, and then moved to California to study at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco where he got his doctorate um, in psychology, got to see a lot of Grateful Dead while he was there, which he talks about in the interview. He's worked in schools, psychiatric hospitals, juvenile detention facilities, psychiatric emergency clinics, and community mental health centers. And he's been in private practice since 2018. He currently lives in Waynesville, North Carolina with his wife, who is also amazing and loves live music too. And right now, they have just in the last year, I believe, formed a nonprofit called the Pearl Psychedelic Institute. Um, And he is, they are one of the 10 centers that is affiliated with MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. They're running an expanded access program, which Raymond is going to tell you all about in this interview. And they're one of 10 sites that are able to right now be doing MDMA-assisted therapy. So that is really exciting. And Raymond just like shared 
all of his knowledge that he has been collecting since the 80s on on psychedelics and the therapeutic benefits of psychedelics. So this episode is jam-packed with lots of really great information. Yeah. If you're interested in psychedelics at all, like sit back, buckle up and get ready for a ride. Yes. Yeah. Well, without further ado, why don't we go ahead and hop on that ride so people can start learning all about all this exciting information. All right. Well, we're part of the Osiris Podcast Network and we'll be right back with Raymond. All right. And we are back. Welcome, Raymond. We are so excited to have you here with us today. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, really looking forward to this conversation with you. So why don't you start us off by just telling us a little bit about how you got interested in psychedelic-assisted therapy? Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say it started off in college. I was a undergraduate at the University of Georgia, and I would say my freshman year, towards the end of my freshman year, uh, I discovered this book called Flashbacks by Timothy Leary, which was his autobiography at the time. And uh, I read that and uh, got real excited about it. I distinctly remember driving to Mississippi for Thanksgiving with my parents and my younger brother and chattering excitedly about psychedelics and my parents getting very worried about the fact that I was reading Timothy Leary and uh, getting excited about these things. And uh, I would say I had an experience um, my sophomore year, college, October 85 um, and uh, or October 84. And uh, I had an experience where uh, I was at the time a uh, advertising major in college because I had some I was fairly creative and I thought that would be a good way to go out, make lots of money. That was kind of my, my idea back then. Mm. And, uh, I had one experience, uh, with psilocybin at that stage. It was my first experience with it. And it was quite profound. Uh, it was where I actually had a vision of seeing myself about my age, about maybe forties, fifties. And I was in a big city in a really nice adorned office. I distinctly remember like the brandy sort of like mad men mm-hmm. on the table mm-hmm. and, and there was awards on the wall. And I had this, I had this image of myself uh, attaining everything in within the advertising world. And, and I would have thought that would have made me feel good. Like, Oh, I'm going to be okay. But instead there was this voice in my head distinctly saying, what the hell are you doing? You're going to spend your life convincing people to buy a bunch of stuff they don't need. What are you doing with your life? And I was like, kind of like, what am I doing? Mm -hmm. And I became fascinated with the fact that I was having this confrontation with myself and that I knew this knowledge wasn't in the mushrooms, that this was accessing a part of me that had been shut away, I think conditioned because of some of my upbringing high school experiences. And so it was just a real reconnection with uh, really what I kind of felt what I was about and what my life was about. And so I became fascinated with how these, how these, uh, fungi were able to, you know, connect me with this deeper part of myself that I had somehow been cut off from. And so I decided pretty quickly that I was fascinated by this and wanted to learn as much as I could about these things. And I also thought about how it would have utility in things like mental health treatment and helping people heal. And so 
this was back in the day before computers and cell phones. So you actually had to go to the library and look up old journal articles. And mm-hmm. so I just started spending hours in the library going through all these old journal articles. And I was just astounded at how much research was in the very peer-reviewed, accepted uh, scientific journals from particularly the 50s and the 60s. And there was just an enormous amount of research that was being done into psychedelics with mental health issues, alcoholism and really wonderful outcomes. Uh, The problem was that a lot of these studies were pilot studies. They weren't very well designed. They weren't very well controlled. But nonetheless, there was some very uh, enlightening information and positive information coming out of here that these substances may have a place in being able to help us heal from some of our mental illnesses. And uh, so uh, reading all of these results made me realize that there was something there. And uh, so that kind of got me on my track. And I remember talking to professors at the University of Georgia, which was a great place to go. But the psychology department, at least at the time, was pretty conservative and nobody was supportive of it. They were mm-hmm. like, no, you don't want to. This is a there's nothing in your career that you could do this with. It, it would be a dead end. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I had some encounters uh, throughout the next couple of years with people. I had one encounter with, uh, I went to West Georgia College for my master's degree uh, because it was a humanistic program. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to learn more psychology. And uh, I ended up going to, I was in a gestalt class and went to a class party with my teacher and her husband was Duncan Blewett, who was one of the old uh, psychedelic researchers from Canada. He was doing Mm -hmm. a lot of the uh, uh, alcoholism research. And um, he actually wrote a very famous manual in 1959 with Nick Chuelis, which was basically how do you work with LSD 25 in individual and group formats. And so I had a conversation with him and he just told me, he said, Raymond, he said, uh, psychedelics are to psychology and psychiatry, what the microscope was to biology. Mm-hmm. And just made me realize that I needed to stay on this path. And so that's kind of, then that took me out to the California Institute of Integral Studies in the Bay Area, where I got my doctorate. And I got to take classes from Ralph Metzner, Stan Groff. There were just some incredible teachers out there. And so that's kind of how I got into it. I had my own experience years ago. And then when I started to delve into the research, I was like, my God, there's just, there's a wealth of things here. And then I was always fascinated by the fact that it all got shut down and nobody talked about it. It was absolutely unheard of in mental health throughout the 80s and 90s. You bring it up and people would be, had no idea there was this research that was happening. So, so I'd say that was kind of my entree into this world was uh, through that journey. That's so cool. Can you tell us a little bit about like the resurgence of this? Because now I feel like we're in this other period where we've really picked it back up and we're looking at it again. So when when did that kind of start again? Mm -hmm. Everything shut down. 1976, the last psychedelic study site in the United States shut down. That was Bill Richards up at the uh, Maryland Psychiatric Research Institute. He was the last. He was basically the last guy going out, shutting off the lights. That was the end of the research in America and pretty much around the world. And I believe it was maybe the next time that there was an allowed, uh, uh, there was a doctor, Rick Strassman, who was working at the University of New Mexico, and he got permission from the government to give DMT to healthy volunteers. And so he was the first approved study to use psychedelics in the United States since then. And that was probably, I believe, the early 90s, um, maybe early to mid 90s. And there is a fascinating book called DMT, The Spirit Molecule. If anybody's interested in reading about his work, it's fascinating, Mm. fascinating stuff. 
if we had more time, we could talk about it because there's some cool stuff in there. <laughs> but um, from that, uh, where MDMA opened up was uh, Dr. Charles Grob, who is a psychiatrist at UCLA Harbor. He got permission from the FDA to do the first phase one MDMA study because he was asking, what if you give pharmaceutically pure MDMA to healthy volunteers or is there any physiological damage that we can see happening? And so that was how the door started to crack back open on this was about 94, 95 with that. And then the phase one studies demonstrated that pharmaceutically pure MDMA could be safely taken by healthy individuals. They did notice that during the MDMA intoxication consistently, there was an elevation of body temperature, heart rate. Um, and so there was in blood pressure. And mm -hmm. so as the drug metabolizes, these things return to baseline. But that was the one thing they noticed but there were no serious acute effects. Um, so they felt like if there was good screening that was being done, mm -hmm. uh, these, these compound, this compound could be taken safely. And so then that opened the door to, and one of the reasons why MDMA, I think, has been able to sort of get to this point is unlike the classical psychedelics like LSD, like psilocybin, they don't cause that disorientation and all those perceptual disturbance quite as much. Mm -hmm. And so people can maintain a clear alert state during their experience. And so there's good memory recall of what's coming up. And so it seems to be a really good psychedelic to try to punch through this wall with. And then the hope is that psilocybin is right behind it. There's been some great studies with that, particularly with uh, people that are terminally ill and are facing their death mm -hmm. and they're dealing with a lot of anxiety and depression. Uh, there's been some wonderful studies with that um, and uh, also with uh, treatment resistant depression. So uh, I think I think psilocybin is about maybe a year behind MDMA right now, but that's kind of how things kind of cracked back open. Strassman got the uh, DMT permission, and then the MDMA started. And Maps is really focused on making MDMA the thing that's gonna. They've tried to put their time and energy behind. Um, and so here we are. I'd gotten to the point where I was, you know, fifty, and uh, I pretty much thought, well, I guess I'm never going to be able to really use these things in practice like I dreamed about back in the mid eighties. And, and then all of a sudden, bam, there's MDMA. And these are very well-designed studies, tightly controlled studies. They've been done just top notch. So it's really hard to argue with the data. And so I think the fact that they've done such a good job with these studies, it's made that even if you don't like psychedelics uh, or you have prejudices against psychedelics, you can't deny from the data that these things do seem to precipitate or catalyze a healing experience when, particularly when it's in the context of psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you, can you just talk a little bit about MAPS for any of the listeners that don't really know what that yes. organization is? Yes, MAPS stands for uh, Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. It was founded back in 1986 by Dr. Rick Doblin. Um, he was a uh, kind of a young hippie down in Florida who had discovered psychedelics, and uh, he had actually done some work with MDMA trying to help people with their trauma and had seen what it could do. And so I think he got very motivated to try to do whatever he can. He had a really fascinating dream too, where like a Holocaust survivor came to him and told him that part of his job was to try to usher these psychedelics into the world for healing. Mm -hmm. And so he launched MAPS in 1986. And I remember becoming vaguely aware of it because I was kind of into the psychedelic thing by then. And I remember just sort of thinking, golly, I think I'm going to get in the car and drive to Santa Cruz and just hitch my wagon to this guy. And, <laughs> 
but uh, I had other things going on. But uh, it's been an organization that he has been at the helm of since 86. And it's grown. And like I said, their main thing was, I think, focusing on cannabis research and uh, MDMA. And now it's expanded. uh, But with MDMA making it to phase three of the FDA uh, process, uh, they have expanded enormously. They've had to hire a whole lot of staff. So they've been going through a lot of transition right now, but they're, they're really good people. They're all pretty devoted to doing this the right way and making sure it's done well. Um, none of one of the interesting things about the uh, MDMA work is big pharma. Nobody, no, no big pharmaceutical companies have put a penny into this research and they don't like it for two reasons. Number one, the patent was uh, given to Merck pharmaceuticals back in 1914. So it's long expired. So there's no company that can come in and corner the market Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and make a ton of money off of it. They also don't like the fact that you just potentially take it a handful of times with your doctor. And unlike SSRIs and other Mm -hmm. psychiatric medications that you're taking every day, sometimes for years, the rest of your life, there's no money to be made. And so these folks have totally stayed out of funding any of this research. And uh, so Rick and the MAPS folks have really taken it upon themselves to really kick it into high gear, the fundraising. I mean, the phase three studies alone cost $26 million. And all of this money has been raised through MAPS from private donations and gifts to MAPS. So they have really been at the forefront of ushering MDMA to this point. And uh, I'd welcome anybody that's interested to go to maps.org, O-R-G, and uh, there's just a lot. You can just get updates on a lot of psychedelic research going on. There's a wonderful archival section where you can actually delve into some of this old scientific literature. And it also tells you how to get involved with the studies. Uh, so they've done a really nice job, I think, of trying to usher us into this era that we're in right now. Um, so it's been a great organization. They definitely uh, deserve props and donations. We wouldn't be here without them. Yeah, for sure. And just briefly, what does it mean? to be stage three? Uh, Yes. Anytime there's a new drug that's coming on the market, uh, the FDA, which is in charge of supervising that, uh, you know, they put it through a very long, uh, arduous research and and approval process, which is good Mm because it's supposed to be protecting us so that nothing, you know, wonky gets out there and Mm -hmm. causes damage. But at the same time, it's it's frustrating because when you start to see things really show promise, you're like sitting around waiting Mm -hmm. and Okay, we're getting there. Mm -hmm. But the phase one was really where they were just looking at MDMA um, and how does it affect the physiology of people, normal human volunteers? Is Is there anything dangerous about taking Pura? MDMA with normal volunteers. Mm -hmm. Phase two was where they actually decided to say, how well can MDMA treat PTSD? And they looked for treatment resistant PTSD. And, you know, this is not a new treatment. Um, Like I said, it was invented by a Merck chemist back in 1912. They applied for the uh, perm for the patent that they got in 1914. And, uh, in 1976, Alexander Shulgin, Sasha Shulgin, who was a chemist in the Bay Area, actually not too far from where you are, um, he synthesized MDMA. And he, like a lot of chemists in the old days, he started with very small doses on himself and worked his way up until he got to 81 milligrams and he felt all the psychoactive effects of it. And at that point, he pulled in his buddy, Leo Zeff, who was a Bay Area therapist who was on the verge of retirement, actually. And he took MDMA and he felt like it just stripped away the ego's defenses. And so he 
was responsible probably more than anybody for exposing more patients and training more therapists in how to use psychedelics. So there was a quite a history from about 76 to 85, 86, when MDMA was scheduled as a schedule one drug, where there was at one point over 4,000 therapists and uh, psychologists and psychiatrists using it legally in their practices. So there was a lot of work being done back then. And one of the things that emerged out of all that work um, was that it seems to work really well for people that have trauma. And so when the phase two study started, uh, Michael and Annie Midhofer, who uh, he's a psych, he's a a medical doctor and his wife is a nurse. They did this seminal phase two study where they looked at uh, first responders, veterans, people that had treatment resistant PTSD. These guys had had severe PTSD for around 19 years. And that was the first study where they gave people it was three MDMA treatments. It was a double blind study. So some people got placebo, but mm-hmm. those people that got placebo even had the opportunity to come back around and get the MDMA treatments. And so phase two was a group of studies. I think there were about six of them and they uh, were all over Boulder, Colorado, somewhere in Canada, but they looked at uh, how effective can MDMA be with treating this uh, like refractory treatment resistant PTSD. And so the safety data from that study, those studies were good. The efficacy data, data from those studies were good. Um, and so that is what launched the phase three and phase three is the last phase of research where you're basically taking what was working in phase two, but you're just Mm -hmm. expanding it to a lot more people. So they're hoping to treat, Mm -hmm. I think between 200 and 300 people in phase three. And so if those studies hold up and the efficacy data continues to be good and the safety data continues to be good, then they are hoping that sometime 2023, probably middle of the year, towards the end of the year, the FDA will have what they need to make a consideration and hopefully approve MDMA as a prescription treatment for PTSD. Wow. So cool. (laughs) That's exciting. Yeah. So, and now why don't you tell us a little bit about the Pearl Institute, which is a nonprofit that you have just kind of started and yeah, tell us about that. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I'll talk briefly a little bit about expanded access because that's kind of what birthed Perfect. Pearl. Um, once, uh, once a drug uh, treatment and 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 MDMA assisted psychotherapy for PTSD was named a breakthrough treatment by the FDA, and that was back in August of 2017. And uh, so, when a drug makes it to the phase three level and it has good safety profile, it seems to be efficacious. Then the FDA under certain circumstances, such as if it treats a life-threatening illness, which PTSD is definitely a life-threatening illness. Mm -hmm. And if the evidence from the research seems to indicate that it provides possibly more effective treatment than what's out there already, then the FDA has a program called Expanded Access. It's also called Compassionate Use. And this is where they will basically allow a select number of providers around the country to be able to start providing this treatment. Mm -hmm. And so MAPS have been lobbying them for a while for expanded access. And they finally agreed. um, I think it was December, 2020, they agreed to do expanded access, but they said, we're only going to allow you to treat 50 people nationwide. 
And so MAPS has uh, designated 10 sites to treat these 50 people. And we were lucky enough to be one of the 10 sites here in Waynesville. And so we're going to be allowed to probably treat five people within this model. I know that one of the hopes for MAPS is that after about 30 to 35 of the 50 have been treated, if the safety data and the uh, efficacy data is still good, they're going to maybe try to appeal to have that expanded from 50 to a larger number. Mm -hmm. But right now it's only 50 people. So we were lucky enough because it's funny when you look at the sites around the country that have expanded access, you know, it's like San Francisco, Portland, New York City, and then you got little Waynesville, North Carolina. And I think yeah. that's one of the reasons they were interested in having us is that we're in a rural location. Mm -hmm. And one of our challenges is, can we bring this sort of psychedelic treatment to people in the rural areas? Can we present it in a way that's palatable to them in a way that they can possibly reconsider some of the misinformation and disinformation that was out there at one point? And can we look at these things in an objective way now so that we can actually study these things? And if they do present possibilities for healing, then do we have the wisdom and the maturity as a culture to be able to look at these things scientifically and objectively and implement them as medicines? So, uh, so we've got this expanded access site. And so one of the things we wanted to do was that we wanted to make it under a nonprofit model. Number one, it takes it takes a lot of money to set this up. You know, five people is not a large number of patients. And so um, there was a lot of infrastructure we need to put in place. And so we went with the nonprofit model so that we could get some grant money. Mm -hmm. um, the Evergreen Foundation, which is a local foundation here, was very generous in helping us basically fund. They got us our training. They got us a lot of our equipment that we needed. They helped us with rent on our treatment room. And so at one, so we ended up forming this nonprofit that's kind of our umbrella that's called the Pearl Psychedelic Institute. And you can see it online. It's at pearlpsychedelicinstitute.org. But this is a nonprofit that we've started and that we have the uh, Expanded Access Project is our first little program underneath the Pearl. And the vision for the Pearl is to have it be a nonprofit that's got a three-pronged approach. The first approach is going to be research. And when I think research, I'm not talking gazillions of dollars going through the FDA. The, the vision that we have is that if you take MDMA, let's say, for instance, and let's hope that it gets approved sometime late 2023, mm -hmm. it will be approved for PTSD. But what that means is it opens the door where you can start to do what's called off-label research, where it's approved for this one use, but then you can start to examine how it might be efficacious in other uses. Mm -hmm. And you have to have IRB approval. It is a study. It mm -hmm. has to be tightly controlled, but you don't need a gazillion dollars to do it. So our research arm is that we would love to take MDMA after it gets approved and to be able to do some small scale pilot studies. How does it work in couples therapy? Does it have any utility in substance abuse? How does it possibly work with uh, obsessional obsessive compulsive disorder? You know, just kind of things that we could just sort of explore mm -hmm. and see what might work. And, and the reason for doing that would be able to generate some pilot studies for future research for other people with deeper pockets mm -hmm. and also to be able to just contribute to the general scientific knowledge out there of, hey, how else could these compounds be used? And like I said, back in the late 70s, early 80s, there was a lot of MDMA being used in therapy, a lot of psychedelics, actually. So being able to stand on the shoulders of those folks and continue some of that work.
Um, and then ketamine, of course, is another psychedelic that is legal now. And we've been doing mm -hmm. a little bit of that um, intramuscularly, which creates a psychedelic experience within the patient. So we kind of were looking at the pearl for research and we were looking at ketamine, MDMA, and hopefully psilocybin, looking at that off-label research I just described, but being able to just kind of help contribute to the scientific knowledge um, by having some pilot studies. The second prong of the pearl is going to be all about training and community education, um, offering trainings. We are going to need once once MDMA is approved, hopefully, um, there is going to be a need to train thousands of therapists out there and how to use how to use in psychedelics. It's just a different way of working. We mm -hmm. didn't get this in graduate school. And if there's going to need some specialized training, not only in how to use these things responsibly and safely and effectively, but how to use them ethically. Uh, there's going to be a huge need that we don't mess this up like it like has happened in the past. We've got to do this right. So there's going to be an enormous need to train clinicians and how to do this work appropriately. And our other issue is also trying to get out there and do a lot of community education. Like I talked about trying to, how do we bring this to the rural population so that they can get behind this and understand. And one of the reasons we want to try to target veterans in the expanded access, uh, I'd like to get a couple of local veterans in there is that if we can help a couple of vets you know, improve their PTSD, then that might be a good way to pull people in that might mm -hmm. normally not be supportive of this. Mm -hmm. I mean, who's who's going to be against helping veterans, somebody that went over there and put their life on the line for us and came back completely destroyed from what they experienced mm -hmm. and being able to go in there and help them to get over what they've experienced. That's a win-win for the whole community. So I, I'm kind of thinking that that might be a great route to help people understand the potential for this these treatments. So to go back to the pearl, mm -hmm. uh, research is one prong, mm -hmm. community education and training is the other. And then the third prong is we want to set up a cost reduced, a reduced cost clinic so that people that don't have insurance, people that couldn't normally access psychedelic treatments can be able to come in and get them at low fee. That's why we have the nonprofit model. Um, and also, as we set up, hopefully, these little research projects, people could come in and participate in the research projects, you know, free of charge, hopefully, for the research it would be. But being able to have a low-fee clinic where people could come in and get ketamine treatments um, and eventually MDMA treatments and eventually psilocybin. So that's the idea is to have this nonprofit that's going to just try to help shepherd these uh, medicines into mainstream acceptance and practice and to really try to help people understand that we need to take a good objective scientific look at this, get all the emotion out of it, mm -hmm. get all the people jumping off buildings and staring into the sun till they go blind and all those stories we used to hear of people using LSD, but taking a look at it, like if we use, if we can learn how to use these things safely and responsibly, do these things offer us an avenue for treatment that we have been overlooking, which is a sad thing because we've had these things for decades and just haven't had the wisdom culturally to be able to look at them and reevaluate them as medicines. So that's really what we're about is trying to bring these things into acceptance and to just help educate folks and to provide some local cost access to it. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I love that so incredibly much. <laughs> Thank you. There is a donate button on our website, by the way. So yes, <laughs> you yeah. guys definitely you you have you are doing the work and you have a lot of work ahead of you. And I see the vision. You're very clear in that, which, you know, it's it's so great to hear just how like when the seed was planted back in the 80s and now here you are with your nonprofit and you know doing this expanded access work and it that's 
you're doing it. You were doing yeah, it. It feels like my whole life has sort of been gearing towards this. I was kind of just hoping one day I was like, I told myself, you know, 25, 30 years ago, I said, I'm just going to start reading everything I can on these things. I'm going to learn as much as I can about these things. And one of these days, <laughs> maybe might be able to do something with it. So I am excited. I can't focus full time on it yet because I haven't been able to make, I haven't made any money in it yet. Mm-hmm. So I'm still in private practice full time, but you know, my goal is to be able to transition and, and do this full time eventually. Once we get the nonprofit really kind of up and running, uh, I'd like to be able to do that full time because that's really where my heart is. And that seems like that's just where everything, all my energy has been kind of moving in that direction since, since that night, 1984. So, yeah. You'll be able to make an impact on so many people. And it is, it's so frustrating that like other pharmaceuticals that we know are really dangerous are like still out there. And then you have to like jump through all these hoops to have this be something that can help people that can like truly help them forever and ever. And then they don't need to continuously take it. That's, it's just so frustrating, but I love how you said, well, you know, like everybody loves a veteran and like, if we can help them in this way and then they can tell their stories of how this transformed their life and help them with this thing they've been holding on to for years and years, people are going to relate to that and then feel safe to maybe experience it themselves. It's like that trust. Like if you know somebody who's done something, you're more likely to maybe do it yourself. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that's like what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And there's just so much veteran trauma out there. I mean, there's still estimated 271,000 Vietnam War vets out there still having struggling with PTSD. And uh, we've got 22 uh, veterans, 22 United States veterans commit suicide every single day. And so it's an enormous pop. It's enormous amount of people that are not getting what they need. And there's some of the folks that really deserve our help. So yeah, I'm hoping that this will be a, a, a nice route to kind of bring them some relief and their families too, because it's not just them going through it. All their loved ones have to deal with it too. Yeah. Wow. I feel like as a collective human race, we need this more than ever, especially just with the pandemic and like wars that are happening and all this stuff. There's so much like trauma that's accumulating. Mm-hmm. Um, where this type of medicine and therapy is, it, I mean, it was always needed, but now it seems like a time as a global, like everybody being affected, it's a time that is really, really, really needed. Oh, yeah. 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 I think in the 30 something years I've been doing this psychology gig, I, I think probably 80% of 80, at least 80% of everything I've ever treated, regardless of what the diagnosis is, is trauma based. Mm-hmm. That's where the etiology and the beginning of the problems were. And it may not be PTSD. It could be avoidance. It could be depression. It could be obsessive compulsive, but boy, it all goes back to some traumatic experience that was not well integrated and mm-hmm. created. And in trying to function out in the world, you create all these other problems to try to get through the world. And so I've been thinking for years, if we could ever find something that could go in there and really treat the roots of trauma, it would open up all of our more conventional treatments, I think would be more effective uh, because that, 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 that trauma injury just really makes it difficult. We found just to get people to implement what we needed them to do for their own mental health. It was very hard to do. So if we could ever get the trauma piece solved, uh, I think we would take a quantum leap in our effectiveness and being able to treat people for their, their other problems. Yeah, absolutely. I see that in my work with chronic pain patients too. It's so often attributed to early traumas. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. Yeah. 
Um, Raymond, can you talk a little bit? So I'm sure that our listeners are all, well, maybe not all, but lots of them are familiar with MDMA and these other psychedelics that we've been talking about. Can you talk a little bit about how this therapy is different than, say, doing it recreationally? Like, what what does it look like when a person, um, you know, goes and does it with a, a trained therapist and in the way that you're you're doing it at your institute? Okay. Um, with, well, I can speak to MDMA and I think there's a lot of parallels with, you know, the other psychedelic that's kind of coming down the pipe is psilocybin. And I think there's a lot of, uh, similarities in how the work's done. Um, essentially what, what we're doing is like with MDMA and, uh, and I think with any kind of psychedelic there, first of all, has to be a sense of safety that's generated and trust with the patient and the therapist. So Mm -hmm. you have to take the time to develop rapport. You have to take the time to get to know the patient. You have to get the time to know what is their trauma history? You know, what's likely to come up Mm -hmm. going back to childhood? What are we likely to encounter? And we want to know about their life, their psychosocial history, so that we have a context for when these things come up, you know, we have some context and, and then preparing them for what are you likely to experience Uh, in the prep sessions for MDMA? We spend a good, bit of time teaching them how to breathe, you know, how to breathe in, like when they feel the MDMA coming on some, some folks tell, you know, talk about, it feels a little like a panic attack coming on. Mm -hmm. And so teaching them how to breathe and regulate themselves so that they can handle as it's coming on. And then in the context of the treatment, uh, when difficult trauma material is coming up, we teach them to try to breathe into it. Don't run away from it. At, you know, be, just be there with it. See what it needs to. Tr- it's there to teach you something. Be open to what it may have to teach you. There's an old adage in psychedelic treatment that goes back to ayahuasca, where they where when something comes, something frightening comes and. Uh, and you encounter something frightening. We know that it's a piece of you. It's a part of your unconscious that you're encountering. But sometimes if it's a giant anaconda or a jaguar or something frightening, there's an old saying that says in and through. You don't mm-hmm. run away from it. You don't shot. You go into it. You go. You try to figure out what is it here for? What is it here to teach me? And you almost uh, there's been a lot of people that will go and enter these animals and then they will see through the eyes of the animals and they will become they'll become aware of what the animal is there to teach them. But this idea of going and meeting whatever's coming up. um, So much of psychiatric medication, for example, is about dampening down symptoms. You know, it's about Mm -hmm. dampening down your symptoms so that you can function, Mm -hmm. which there's a utility for that. But psychedelic psychotherapy is completely different in the sense where it's not about dampening down symptoms. It's about bringing your material up and having you in a position along with your therapist where you can safely engage with this material and process it like it needs to be done. Mm -hmm. Um, and the idea that that will restore a sense of balance and some health. So, so there's a lot of preparation that's done. There's a lot of trust building. There's a lot of rapport building with the, between the patient and the therapist. And then in the actual medicine session, whether it's psilocybin, MDMA, typically uh, the patient is invited to put on headphones and eye shades after they take the medicine and to recline. And that idea is just to eliminate external noise so that they can really have an internal experience. It's not required. There's people during the MDMA that will take off the eye shades and they'll start talking and maybe have some talk therapy with the therapist. But in general, what they find is most of the deepest work happens when you are within yourself engaged with the medicine. And so the most important thing of, of psychedelic treatment, and this is, is that there has to be integration. 
our culture is famous for, we don't have any good roadmaps or blueprints for, you know, when people go out and take psychedelics and they have these deep experiences of the collective or the archetypal or very powerful experiences, we don't have any roadmaps or blueprints in our culture for helping people understand what that means. And, and, you know, if, and so the integration is important so that we can get people to understand what did that mean for you when you had that experience, you know, and then what did, what did you learn from it? And how do you take that knowledge and bring it into your everyday life? That's the key part. And it's called integration. And integration is probably as important, if not more important as the psychedelic experience itself, because that's where you learn how to take what you experienced and bring it into your everyday life. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, our world is not better off is that just taking these things a lot of time doesn't do it. Otherwise, we'd all be a bunch of like, you know, Buddhas and evolved people and we wouldn't be having these wars like we're having. But I think the fact that taking psychedelics in and of themselves do not guarantee that you're going to heal or you're going to evolve or you're going to become a better person. I think it's the context that you use these in, the intentions that you have going in to use these things and the integration. What do you do with the experience? How do you bring it into your life? That's the key point. So that to me is the big difference is, and, and, and with psychedelic therapy, when people are having their sessions, when they're having their experiences, the therapists aren't doing a lot of direction. Mm-hmm. Um, like in psilocybin, particularly people are just sitting there and we're just kind of providing some containers and some safety, mm-hmm. letting people know that they're taken care of so that they can fully immerse themselves in their internal experience. And there's not a lot of directing to it. There's a theory in psychedelic mental health that if psychedelic assisted therapy, that we have this inner healing intelligence, all of us deep down know what we need to heal and psychedelics allow us to get in touch with this inner healing intelligence. And so as therapists, all we're doing is facilitating that process within the therapist, within the patient and allowing them to have their experience and then helping them along to provide support and then to help them make sense of the experience afterwards. So so I think that's the that's the big thing about this is uh, kind of non-directive and letting the patient sort of know where to go, trusting that the patient knows where they need to go, and then being able to provide integration afterwards. Like, how do you take this, you know, very out of the ordinary experience and how do you bring that into your everyday life and make sense of it? Yeah, it's kind of like what Tara Lee and I are doing with live music. <laughs> yeah, a lot of parallels. <laughs> A lot of parallels, a lot of parallels. Uh, The Grateful Dead was my therapy from 1985 to 1995. It was my psychotherapy and it's, yep, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a great segue to just kind of, you know, we talk a lot about live music and the healing power of it. And of course, so often our, you know, the live music that we go to see is sometimes coupled with the use of psychedelics or substances to open us up and have these um, transformative experiences definitely different than you know what we've been talking about in the beginning and i think it's great to really separate those two um but i'm curious because you just have done so much research and reading about all of this can you talk a little bit about the history of psychedelics because these substance psychedelic substances have have been used for a very very long time for healing and also coupled with live music um can you talk a little bit about that well um yes uh 
Well, psilocybin is a is a the, that is the psychoactive ingredient in in these certain mushrooms, uh, psilocybin type mushrooms, and uh, those have been around and been used for probably thousands of years. Um, uh, ayahuasca, which contains DMT, is it psychoactive? It has been around for thousands of years as well. So there's there's been shamans and uh, you know religious cultural initiations have been going on for literally thousands of years where people have incorporated incorporated uh, psychedelics and mind altering substances with uh, ceremonies, you know, to mark various things in life. And um, LSD is a fairly new one that was uh, actually was in first synthesized in 1938, but uh, Albert Hoffman didn't actually pull it off the shelf and realize what he had until 1943. So that one's a fairly new one. Mm -hmm. Um, Mescaline has been around. That's a derivative of, uh, of the, of the psychoactive inside the peyote cactus. That one's been around for a long time. There was actually some research in the early 1900s with uh, mm-hmm. people using mescaline. So they've been around a long time. Um, I think uh, psychedelics, you know, marijuana cannabis is considered a psychedelic mm-hmm. and a kind of a light one, but it's a psychedelic as well. That one has been intimately joined in there with music for years, going back to the jazz musicians from the thirties and the twenties. I mean, it's been around a long time too. So I think, uh, a lot of musicians have been, uh, been to into, into altering their consciousness. I think that's been a, a long tradition in most artistic forms. I think people, I think it's one thing artists do, they get us to look at things in different ways. And sometimes if they alter their consciousness and they get insight on something, what makes an artist good is that they can actually present their vision to people. Mm-hmm. Cause I think one of the things people do is that, you know, they do get, they do get exposed to unique ways of thinking when they're using psychedelics and, but what uh, it doesn't make a person creative necessarily. It gives you creativity. It gives you like uh, Mike Aaron's once told me, it's like grist for the mill. It gives you things to think about and, and the process, but unless you have that talent to be able to express it, it's not going to turn you into a great painter. It's not going to turn you into a poet, you know, mm-hmm. but it will, it will expose you to these things. But I think there's a long relationship between uh, drugs and psychoactives and musicians. Um, there was, you know, I was, you know, I saw about a hundred, I think I saw exactly a hundred Grateful Dead shows over those 10 years. That was actually one of the reasons why I went to the California Institute of Integral Studies. Cause I was like, wow, I can see the dead like 12 <laughs> times and never leave the Bay area. So <laughs> that was, that was a selling point for going there. But um, you know, I always felt like the Grateful Dead uh, and there's other offshoots of it. Now I'm just talking mm-hmm. about the Grateful Dead. Cause that was my, that was my cauldron of change that, that I was participating in. But uh I felt like that, you know, they were playing music, but what was happening was I felt like it was like psychotherapy on a grand scale when we would go to these things. And I just felt like, you know, there were thousands of people in there, most of them with altered states of consciousness. And I did a lot of research back in grad school because for a while there, I thought I wanted to do my dissertation on the Grateful Dead and the cultural significance of it and uh, ended up not, but I still did a lot of research into it. And and I was looking at a lot of the parallels between shamanism and what the Grateful Dead were doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think they intentionally set out to do this very much, but I think they were sort of lucky enough to be born at a time and in a place where the whole psychedelic thing was really 
really kicking off, you know, and then they had Owsley Stanley, who was one of the most famous LSD chemists. He was their patron. He, he was their equipment man. He was their sound person. Mm -hmm. And so they spent a lot of time delving very deeply into psychedelics and they often played their music in their early days. They always played high Mm -hmm. on LSD. And I think that that engendered not only a, uh, kind of a telepathy among them that you read about, but it also engendered some type of connection with the audience where there was this exchange of energy. And you, they, you would read about in all kinds of interviews where, you know, they would say they feel it coming off the audience. The audience, of course, is getting off on what they're putting out there too. And one of the reasons why they did different shows every night was this idea of kind of feeling the room out. What's mm-hmm. the vibe in the room? What's the feeling in the room? So they had kind of attained this state of awareness and openness, I think. And then this particular audience that they attracted, uh, there was quite a little thing going on there. And in order for a shamanic uh, thing to happen, there had to be a shaman, there had to be a patient, and there had to be the spirit world. And I just felt like the Grateful Dead, and a lot of times we're like the shamans, all of us that were there were obviously the patients, mm-hmm. and the spirit world was the music. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you read that, you know, their, their music was an amalgamation of all kinds of different musics, jazz, blues, Dixieland, rock and roll. I mean, it was just a really strange kind of combination of music. And when you look at a lot of the lyrics, particularly Robert Hunter's, you know, they're very, they're all coming from the psychedelic space, but they're very deep. They're very archetypal. They're very mythical. Mm-hmm. And one of the things in psychedelic psychotherapy is that when you're doing music is they like to have lyricless music. So that it's mm-hmm. not directive when you're doing your therapy, but boy, part of me wants to put some debt on there because <laughs> it was so broad. I mean, I could go to a show and a, and a song would mean something to me for five or six years. And then I would be going through something in my life and I would go to a show and I would hear this song and it would completely have a different meaning and it would resonate with whatever was going on in my life. And it was just an ongoing growth experience. Um, and there was a, uh, I talked to you a little bit. There was a, there was a, there was a religion, a mystery religion back in Greece that was called, it was based out of the town of Eleusis, which was outside of Athens. And this was a place where there was a temple and this religion was started in about 1700 BC and it existed for over 2000 years before the early Christians came in and did away with all of it. But this was a religion where people would come to this temple in Eleusis and they would essentially have a all night ceremony in this building called the Telestrian. And they would drink some kind of potion out of this really funky looking container called the Kykian. And they would drink this potion and something would happen inside that building overnight that completely completely changed these people. And they they never had to have the experience again. It was a once in a lifetime thing. You were only allowed to have it once. You were forbidden to speak of what happened. That's why we're still trying to struggle what was going on in there. But mm-hmm. there was an interesting book called The Road to Eleusis that was written by Albert Hoffman and Carl Ruck and uh, Gordon Wasson, who actually was the first uh, person, white guy that went down to discover the, or was shown the mushrooms by Maria Sabina. They wrote this book where they had a theory that what was in that potion was essentially ergotized beer. They grew rye and wheat on that plane down there and ergot infects it. And so they figured that these priests at some point had figured out how to make essentially ergotized beer and that these people were actually drinking some form almost like of LSD and having these revelations and this death rebirth thing that was happening to where this religion sustained itself for 2000 years. And uh, it was the religion of Greece. And, and, and so I felt like there was just some simple, 
there were some similarities between my, the Grateful Dead had some of the same stuff. There were some of those pre-show rituals. Back in the day, uh, we used to have to call on the phone and there was the ticket hotline you had to call and you had to call at like three in the morning because <laughs> it was busy all the time. And you mm-hmm. called and they would give you explicit instructions on how big your card had to be and what had to be on there. And you had to get it a hundred percent right or you weren't going to get your order filled. So mm-hmm. from that to gathering up your friends, gathering up all the stuff you were going to take, you know, traveling to the show and you'd see people in the road at the show. And there was, there was a whole culture that followed this band around and you kind of either got it or you didn't. Mm. Uh, it was weird. There were people that were like, I don't get this music at all, <laughs> you know? And then there were people that were like, oh my God, how can you not get it? Mm. And and I even had people, friends of mine, I would take to the shows. I can think of a couple of them and I would see them at the show completely rocking out, getting into it. And then the next day they'd be like, eh, it was okay, <laughs> you know? <laughs> they weren't quite ready for it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But uh, I don't know. I saw some parallels there. There's Real quick, I'll mention this guy. Uh, I saw a talk he did on YouTube. There's a guy named Mendel Kalen, and he is uh, from the Netherlands. He's a psychologist. And he did his PhD thesis on LSD and music. And he did it at Imperial College in London, funded by the uh, Beckley Institute, Beckley Foundation. And he was looking at what is going on in the brain when we're listening to music on LSD. And one of the things that he found, which to me sort of highlights why I felt like and why so many people, I think, felt like going to dead shows, going to live music in this in this kind of way was uh, like psychotherapy, is that they found that these two areas of the brain get really charged when you're listening to music um, under the influence of LSD. And one is called the parahippocampus. And this is where a lot of your personal autobiographical memories are. And then the uh, the, uh, visual uh, cortex is also stimulated. And so what's happening is the music, when you're resonating with the music, it is sending all these memories from your life, these autobiographical memories that go up to the uh, auditory parts of the brain or the uh, uh, visual parts of the brain, and it creates pictures. And so when you've got your eyes closed and you're listening to music and you're dancing, which is a very old shamanic, shamanic thing, listening to a beat and dancing, mm-hmm. and you get all these pictures coming into your mind, and a lot of them are autobiographical, and, and a lot of them are quite profound, and they're working with the music. And that, to me, is what a lot of people enjoy about the jam bands and the live music and going and having those kinds of times with their friends. It is a, it's a celebration of life, and it's really a deep reconnection with yourself, potentially. And if you are engaged with the music, it can teach you a lot about yourself and teach you a lot about what your priorities are. Um, when I used to go to dead shows, I'd go to like three in a row, you know, at a place. And mm-hmm. inevitably, I found the first night was like sifting through all the garbage I'd accumulated psychologically since the last shows. And it was like <laughs> a purging. And then the next night was like, kind of reconnecting with what's important, like what my priorities need to be in life. Mm -hmm. And then by the time the third show is over, most times I would walk out of there and you just realize, man, your life is an open book. (laughs) You can rewrite, you can take every day as a fresh start to have a different kind of life, to have a different kind of existence. And it felt like it reordered my priorities as I went back out into the world with this fresh ideas about, you know, what can I do? What's, what's ahead. And that to me was incredibly healing and incredibly therapeutic. And I have a feeling there's quite a lot of people that may not experience it quite in those terms, but I would imagine they get that same sort of recharge, that same reorientation, that mm-hmm. inspiration. And so I think there's something very old 
that we're engaging in when we get together and go listen to live music. And particularly if people take psychedelics, I think there's a synergy there, uh, not only with the band and them, but there is something that's going on that feels like transformation almost on a grand scale. Not with everybody, because once again, I think there has to be some integration. You have to think about what does this mean to my life? Otherwise, it was like, yeah, man, it was great. I was so high. But then you don't Mm -hmm. remember anything about it and you don't change or grow from it. But I think the the possibility of having those kinds of experience in those arenas is uh, one of the reasons why we do it. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. You're <laughs> speaking our language. <laughs> yes, you are. Yeah. Wow. Well, we have covered so much. And Raymond, you are just like such a wealth of information. It has been so inspiring talking to you and fascinating. Uh, Tara Lee, is there any, can you think of anything that you would like to ask Raymond or any? Anything else I mean, I feel up? like you covered everything and I'm like, I also want to keep on talking to you for the next like five hours. I <laughs> 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 do it, unfortunately. Yes. <laughs> Enjoy it. Yeah. Well, Raymond, anything else that you can think of that, I don't know, our listeners might be interested in hearing about or any last comments or words? Well, I'm glad that COVID is winding down, although it still feels like the whole world is about to burst into flames. I'm glad COVID is winding down so that we can kind of get back out and do some of this stuff and not be quite as worried as we were over the last couple of years. So, um, no, I just I'm glad you guys do this show. And uh, I am, a like I said, the, the Grateful Dead was a very, very important part of my life. And a lot of my friends, uh, it was just a huge part of our development and our life and really helped shape how we view the world and each other. And it, it was just a very important part. And, and I don't doubt that people that are into these other jam bands, you know, that, that maybe I don't go see as much. Um, they might be getting similar things out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, and some of those things I spoke to, I think are one of the reasons why, but um, yeah, I think that it's, uh, I think it's important in my, in my role as a researcher, I need to say, you know, psychedelics are not for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, there are folks out there that probably, you know, there, that's why we had those problems in the sixties and seventies, people were misinformed and mm-hmm. they didn't know what they were doing and they would take a hit of acid instead of seeing God, they'd have their childhood trauma coming up in front of them and they would be out, you know, someplace unsafe. So mm-hmm. I think we have to do a better job of educating ourselves. We have to do a better job of being honest about what the dangers are, because I think if we can do that, we can mitigate them mm-hmm. and then we can learn how to use these things very effectively to try to heal ourselves and hopefully heal our culture long term. Yes. Heal the world in general. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Thank you all for having me. I really appreciate it. I love talking about this stuff. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I just have one last question. So you t- touched a little bit, I feel like kind of on the future, but anything else you want to add about where you see this going and, and kind of what the future might have in store for us? Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think we've been waiting. I think, like I said, we've had these things for a long time. We've known about these things and I just don't think we had the cultural wisdom or maturity to be able to look at them objectively. And so I am hoping that all the work that has been done up to this point has set the stage for us to be able to look at these things objectively, um, unemotionally, and to be able to say what they might be useful for, what they might not be useful for, and to go forward with that. I do think we have an enormous responsibility, folks, as this stuff starts to move
move into the mainstream is that we have got to try to make sure we're using these things responsibly. Uh, we've got to make sure that people understand the enormous responsibility that comes with being a therapist with these things. I mean, you essentially, you've got someone's psyche in your hands and that mm -hmm. is not the time to play God. It is not the time to try to influence somebody. It's about helping this person heal themselves. And so I think we need to very much emphasize the ethics and the responsibility that are kind of come with being able to use these things uh, responsibly going forward. So that's kind of my huge thing. And I do see challenges, quite frankly, there's ketamine clinics popping up everywhere. People are mm -hmm. licking their chops to just make tons of money in psychedelics. That's one of the worrisome things I see happening. And so I think we're going to need to do a great job training people. And, you know, I do feel like too, that there is a not to get too esoteric, but there is like a sense of truth that comes with these things. And I feel like if you are going to take the responsibility to engage with these substances and to help even be a therapist, you have an enormous responsibility to do it the right way. And I do believe that if you don't, these things will whack you down. Mm -hmm. uh, I think if you are irresponsible at being stupid, things can happen. And so I think we've got to have some integrity in how we do these things and in our relationships with these substances, don't take them for granted and to operate with integrity and safety and responsibility. But I think if we can get through the next few years, which is where I think these things are going to start to come out into mainstream practice, if we can navigate the challenges, the inevitable mistakes that are going to happen and continue to try to keep this objective view of what we're trying to get to, I think I see positive things coming from it. And, you know, there's an old saying, hurt people hurt people. And I think that is ultimately... Mm -hmm why we're in this mess we're in as humans right now. And so if we can all learn how to heal ourselves and maybe we'll get along a little better and, uh, you know, maybe we'll finally evolve as a species. I'm not saying psychedelics is going to do that necessarily, but I could see it potentially being a tool to help us try to make this a better place. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Well, thank you again so much, Raymond. This has been so educational. I am just really, really glad that that you're here and you're doing all the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate y'all having me and uh, I'm glad you guys are doing what y'all are doing. It's a great thing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So much. <laughs> Thank you. All. all right, everybody. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. Oh my goodness. My mind is blown and my wheels are turning and I'm just like... So excited about what just happened. <laughs> I know that was so exciting. I told Raymond after the interview that I'm like ready to pack up and move to Waynesville right now. <laughs> <laughs> right? Me too. I'll come with you. Put me in your suitcase. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's just like, oh, it's just so inspiring that this work is happening right now and really hoping that it is the right time and that the right people are here to usher us in to this time. I mean, I feel like it's the right time, but, you know, collectively, everybody has to be on board with that. Not yeah. everybody, but enough people to kind of change the tides and really get this, get this rolling in a way that it needs to be to help the people, everybody that can be helped with this medicine. Yeah, absolutely. and. Like, I love that he's out there talking about it and kind of normalizing it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a really important part because there is such a stigma tied to psychedelics. And, you know, I mm-hmm. was, I taught a microdosing course with CJ, the nurse that specializes in psychedelics. And mm-hmm. because of that, I got kicked off of PayPal and a lot of my posts on Instagram, they wouldn't let me and Facebook, they got like taken down uh, because mm-hmm. I was talking about psychedelics. And so there is definitely like a pushback of this, like, because of the stigma of it. But when there is people talking about it and there's real research that can't be argued with happening and Mm -hmm. there's more and more people talking about it and more and more people that are like you and me and, or even just like, like your doctor (laughs) that are out there talking about it, it's going to start to then become normal. Cause a lot of things in our lives that are now normal weren't at one point. That's right. That's right. Yes. Yes. And it, it's not easy being on the cutting edge of things. But, you know, if we think about this, like, was the cutting edge in the 40s and 50s, whenever he said that this research started? Or are we here now? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we're like on the the middle, the <laughs> in the middle. We're pushing it through. I yes. feel it happening. Yeah. yeah. I feel it too. I mean, we need it really badly. So we do. Yeah, we do. And people, people want it. People are asking for. I just had a friend text me last night to ask me about ayahuasca. And this is a friend that, you know, doesn't, isn't really into psychedelics on a, you know, as a thing, just, but something that they're looking into right now and really want to experience. So it's people just like, you know, what we call alternative therapies. Um, people are looking for other ways. The mainstream medical is just not helping people to live happy, healthy lives. If you need to, you know, get a limb fixed or come back from the verge of death, they're great. But as far as like living a whole happy, healthy life, it's not where it's at. So we need to look in other places. Yeah. And that this amazing medicine exists. Like I have a really good friend who had childhood trauma that had her depressed and it was really affecting all of her relationships and her job and like everything. And she tried everything under the sun. Mm. And Mm -hmm. then one day was like, you know, I'm going to try MDMA therapy. And she didn't do it with a therapist, but on her own in a safe environment. And it totally like cured her of her problems where she was able to like move on and live an amazing life. And she tried Mm -hmm. everything before that. And then just doing this a couple of times kind of let all that trauma like up and out so she could move on with her life finally after like 40 years. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And not that we are saying to do that (laughs) for anybody. (laughs) Do not try this at home. Yes. (laughs) Um, It is, especially if you're working with trauma, so important to work with a therapist, even if you're not doing it with them. But using them for that integration piece is so important because, yeah, I mean, the, the, the amazing thing is, is that these substances can help a person heal for good you know, can really get at the root of what is creating those challenges and those problems and those barriers in life. Um, and they can help to knock them down. Even my supervisor at at the pain clinic is going through the MDMA assisted therapies and he's totally straight edge. And I'm like so proud of him for 
for doing that because he knows he he's been working in trauma. He does EMDR with patients. Um, he's been trained in other body based therapies, but he sees that also as just being such a more effective and um, and quicker intervention. So yeah. Well, I just want to give one more thing back to my friend is that the therapy like that wasn't available to her. And so Mm -hmm. she did take a risk by trying it on her own with a friend. Um, Mm -hmm. But so that's why it's so amazing and really great the work that Raymond is doing because that is and maps and um, all these other people are doing because that is then making it more accessible in a really, really safe, controlled environment, which is so important. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So for the... Did you know? Raymond gave so much information in the interview that I don't want to overload you with more research. But what I would love to do for this Did You Know is to point you in the direction of the Pearl Psychedelic Institute, which is Raymond's nonprofit. And if you go to their website, which is pearlpsychedelicinstitute.org, you can follow along with really everything that they are doing. He puts out a blog every week or every other week. Um, They've just done such a lovely job on this website. They have, you know, they really lay out the work. Raymond talked a lot about, you know, what what do these sessions look like? How is this done with a trained therapist? But they give even more information on their website. Of course, you can donate on their website if you're interested in helping them which I think it's just so fantastic that they are in rural North Carolina and they're bringing this work to the people who really need it there. Um, So you can, again, follow along with their work on their website, find out more about how you can get involved. And also, as a side, if you're interested in finding out more about Another website is really focused on MDMA-assisted therapy right now, but if you're interested in some of the other psychoactive substances that Raymond was sharing about, you can also go to MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, is what MAPS stands for, and their website is maps.org, and they have, um, they actually talk about Raymond's Institute in um, their news too. So you can keep up with with Raymond and what he's doing for MAPS. You can also see about MDMA research, marijuana, LSD, ayahuasca. Um, And as Raymond was saying, you can check out some of the studies that have been done earlier um, and just kind of see, like, just go down the rabbit hole of research from where we've been to where we are now and also, you know, kind of dream about where we're heading. Wonderful. Well, let's put that into practice for my section. Daily Jam. So Leah just told you all about how you can connect with Raymond and his organization and also MAPS. And so for the Daily Jam... I want you to go to those websites and check it out. And maybe if you feel so called to donate so more research and studies can happen so this can come to the mainstream and heal us all. Yes. And on MAPS website, especially, I think even on their homepage, it 
it's pretty clear on if you want to get involved in this work, how you could do that. You can donate. You can choose your journey. You can either donate. You can train to become a therapist. You can participate in trials. Um, look at different careers that are coming out with this research. So there's their website is also really well put together. And you can kind of choose how you want to be involved in this, whether it's just kind of looking as an observer or as a direct donor, or maybe you want to be trained as a therapist and you want to see what options are out there for that. So Leah, I'm really curious about what you're up to, like what's lighting you up? What's something you want to share with our audience about what you're doing? Yes. Thanks, Tara Lee. Right now, what is lighting me up is getting back out there with all of you guys and dancing to some live music. And I've been, yeah, I have uh, started the first of many live embodied grooves. It's happening in Berkeley at Cornerstone. Um, This past month, we actually, I ended up doing it during set break which was different, something that I have not done. I'm actually using recorded music for these because we're kind of getting me in the door so that then they can say, yeah, you can have a full band before the show. But that's not where I'm at right now. So I'm using recorded music. It still has the same intention of really getting you into your body, enhancing the experience of live music through movement. And it's just so much fun. It was so well received last month. So I'm going to be doing it again with the Left Hand Monkey Wrench Gang at Cornerstone in Berkeley. The next gig is March 20th, so coming up in just a couple of days. And Haley Jane is actually going to be on that lineup of the Left Hand Monkey Wrench Gang, so that's pretty exciting. And so come on out and do some dancing, see some great live music, and get into your bodies with me during set break with Embodied Groove. You can find out more about that at embodiedgroove.com. We're doing it every month. It's like the second to last Sunday. Show starts at 7, doors open at 6.30. And for right now, Embody Groove's happening during set break. Amazing. Yay. (laughs) How about you, Tara Lee? How can people find out more about what you have going on? Well, if you are somebody that's been like really wanting change in your life and you have maybe been talking about what that is that can allow that change and Maybe it's starting a business and you want to stop talking about it and start doing something about it and try on that business in a fully supported environment for six months. So you can see if it's something that you really want to do or was it a thing that you're just like, okay, I'm really glad I tried that. And so if that's you and you want to see like, even if you don't know what that is exactly or what that looks like, I would love to talk to you because I am kind of a genius at helping you get clear and seeing what your next step is. So if this is you and this speaks to you, even if it's like a whisper deep down inside that is like, yes, I need to do something different with my life, then go to my Instagram at rocking life with two underscores and DM me the word change and I will have a little surprise for you. Mm, All right. Everybody do that right now. How exciting you get like your own little creativity lab where you get to develop your idea and see how it goes and be supported by Tara Lee's genius. (laughs) Yay. Yay. (laughs) Yeah. Like everyone who I've got to work with and support in the past are like up to amazing things. And so I'm just looking forward to who else this calls in. Nice. All right. Well, you can also follow us while you're on Instagram. Go ahead and follow us at Groove Therapy Podcast. 
And you can join our Facebook group at Groove Therapy Podcast Community, where we are talking about all this. We're posting our newest episodes and then other cool things that past guests have going on too that you can find out more about in our group. And also, please make sure that you are following us wherever you are listening to this podcast. That is how, that's what tells that kind of platform that you like this podcast, that it's a good podcast, that they should highlight it for other people. So please, if you are enjoying this, just at least do that for us. We would really appreciate it. And if you are on Apple Pod listening to us, you can always leave us a rating and or a review as well. Yeah, we will do a happy dance. Every time we see a review, we literally freak out and <laughs> get so <laughs> excited. So if you would do that for us, we will be forever grateful. Yes, we will. And then lastly, we are a part of Osiris Pod. And you can find more amazing and inspiring music and arts podcasts at OsirisPod.com. They have lots of cool things that are happening over there. So definitely check that out as well. And. I think that's all the things. That's all the things. Well, we hope you have an amazing day. And thank you so much for listening. We would just be talking to ourselves, which would be great if it wasn't for you. But we're grateful you're out there listening. So thank you so much. Yes, we are. We appreciate you very much. And we love you. And we'll catch you next time. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.